0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also the seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does, he must remain, he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction." And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful." And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast, until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living." Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls." The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares, who gained wealth from her, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and, those, and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like that great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, Alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon. The great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. This is the word of the Lord.
0: The World Wide Web, you might might have heard of it, uh, is a huge component to launching us in the era of technology, uh, of technological advancement. It's, It's allowed for quite a unique phenomenon where the world, in a sense, has gotten smaller. There's more of the world right at our fingertips. We know more about different things than we have ever known before, and things like Wikipedia and Facebook and Twitter make it easy to access those bits of information. It circulates so fast, and it comes from a variety of sources. Now, I'll leave it to you to decide if that's a good or a bad thing, but one of the things that happened as the the technological era circulates more and more information, there is one drawback that I can think of, and that is the free-flowing information uh, and the circulation of conspiracy theories. Most of you know what a conspiracy theory is, um, conspiracy theories explain events by suggesting some sort of sinister underworking, something that, that is more, more than meets the eye, something going on underneath um, that, that's leading towards something that maybe you would not have expected. And political scientists have studied um, these conspiracy theories on a large scale, and they found that there are, are three principles that sort of unite every single conspiracy theory that's sur- surfaced. First, first theory is that nothing happens by accident. It's the idea that somewhere behind the curtain there's some sort of powerful person, the, the Illuminati, the, the mob, the government that's pulling strings to manipulate things. Nothing happens. The second is that nothing is as it seems. These powers get you to see what they want you to see. It's really a matter of of sleight of hand. It's a matter of optics, right? What, What you see isn't necessarily as it seems. And the third theory is that everything is connected. That everything happens because it's part of something bigger. There's a bigger picture here that you can't see yet. Now, there's been a broad spectrum of conspiracy theories. Some are silly and harmless, right? Like the, like the ones about uh, the world governments conspiring uh, to, to plant fossils because dinosaurs aren't real. Like that, people think that. There's, there's some theories that might seem a little bit more plausible. They're more prominent, but still only embraced by a, nor- a minority of people, whether that be the flat earth theory, that the, the wor- world isn't actually a sphere, but it's flat. Or, or even go back to 1969, and did we actually land on the moon or not? And then there are some conspiracies that are downright Harmful and fear-provoking, things like the Sandy Hook Elementary School that it was all fabricated, or 9-11 was the government's doing. Those are fear-mongering tactics. And honestly, I have no desire to debate these things. Um, that's not my intention, to, to bring those things up. And i found that people who are usually bought into conspiracy theories... Uh, are pretty cemented in what they think about those things and typically make better evangelists for conspiracy theories than Christians are of the gospel. They seem to consume their whole life and be all about them. And while these conspiracy theorists evangelize away, the vast majority of people discard or, or dismiss what they have to say and it seems to be for a variety of reasons. Perhaps it's unreliable sources. It's no secret that we live in an era of polarizing and biased media. And so these sources of these conspiracy theories don't necessarily seem to be very trustworthy or they come from a spazzy and eccentric personality who's just constantly freaking out about something. Another reason why they might dismiss them is because these conspiracy theories seem so bizarre and outlandish. Like, they can detect the fear-mongering or even the overextending of reason. It just seems completely implausible. I think, finally, there's a third reason that people tend to push away from conspiracy theories is the feeling of being helpless. You hear about these things that could possibly be going on, and you think, okay, e- even, even if that is true, what could be done about it? If there really are superpowers pulling strings, what could we do to change this? And so we kind of just, well, I, I have no control over the situation. I'm just not gonna give a lot of thought to it. Now, I bring all this up. I'm not trying to introduce you to some wacky conspira- conspiracy theory. Today... Though our passage exposes us to the most prolific and ongoing conspiracy theory that you cannot afford to overlook. And actually, to label it as a conspiracy theory isn't actually accurate, because this is not a theory, it's a, a reality. This is coming from a reliable source, and there's a heap of evidence pointing to this reality, There are centuries and centuries worth of evidence, and it's still accumulating that this is true. And this reliable source that we get it from is none other than God. It's coming from Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the truth. There's no one more truthful than Jesus. He's in touch with reality there's no one more trustworthy than him and so we we can say okay it's coming from a credible source and what jesus is trying to do is to open up our eyes to this mystery that's going on he wants us to understand the sinister underworkings of the world that oftentimes we just overlook And instead of feeling helpless or like we can't do anything, Jesus wants to wake us up. He wants us to be a woke church, people who live in a way that intentionally sabotages this destructive conspiracy reality. Reality. And so he gives us these two chapters, Revelation 17 and 18, to open up our eyes to this. And and today I'm going to do something a little bit different. Usually I go verse by verse through the entire passage, but as you saw, there's a lot of stuff to cover, and it's pretty repetitive. And so what I'd like to do today, if you'd trust me, I'd like to distill this down for us in sort of a compact little sermon, I guess. What we've been seeing up to this point in the book of Revelation is how God is explaining how he will save his people and punish evil in order to deliver on every single promise that he's ever made. Jesus is setting up an unrivaled kingdom, a kingdom where there is no Satan, there is no evil, there is no demonic forces, where the redeemed people of God will be with him forever in paradise. Now, last week, if you were with us, we what we saw were the final stages or or the final unleashing of God's wrath and judgment on sin and evil in the world in the seven bowls. We saw those poured out. And in chapter 17, it's kind of unique because this, this angel appears to John who is documenting all of these visions that God is giving him. And this angel shows, shows up and warps the narrative timeline to show what so, show John what had happened while God was issuing these judgments. Now, this is one of the places where this passage gets confusing because there, there's theoretically a little bit of time travel that's happening here. There are In the future, as God is showing John this revelation, and now this angel is taking John back in time, but not far enough back in time where they're in the present, but still in the future. And you would think, like, how can an angel do this? Listen, this is not a problem for God. God is not limited to the confines of time like we are. We can only go forward, right? Nobody's going to Target to buy a calendar from 2015. There's no no way to go back and do it over again. We only move forward. But God is different than us. We say God is omnipresent. He's present in every place. Now, when we think of that, when we think God of being omnipresent, we typically think geographically present, That God is present here in this church at this moment and he's present in all the churches that are preaching the gospel uh, throughout the city. God's everywhere at every time. But that also applies in the domain of time. Revelation has been hinting at this ability of God that he is outside of time. says that he is the God who was and is and is to come. It's showing all three tenses of time at once. And so we can see that God is equally present in the past and the future as he is in this very moment of time which we occupy. Now, why does this matter? Why why, why does it matter that God is omnipresent, past, present, future? Well, it's because when God is giving us these visions of the end times, when he's telling us what's gonna happen, how the church is gonna go through this time of trial and the world will get darker and darker and then he's finally, he, he's, not, he's not speaking about it in theory, like, like it's a prediction of this might happen. God's telling us these things because they are actually going to happen. To God, this is an absolute reality because he's already there in that moment of time. And so we don't have to look at these This passage, don't have to look at any of the book of Revelation, and and fear is like, is this going to actually come out the way that God says it will? We can trust because God is already there occupying the time, and Jesus has won the battle. We can have certainty about the future. Now, in the background of these last few chapters of Revelation, there's been an escalating tension going on between good and evil. And in Ephesians chapter six, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we are currently in the midst of this battle. But this battle isn't against flesh and blood. This isn't a physical warfare that Christians are being called to. This is a spiritual warfare. There's a spiritual battle that's raging right now, and it's with the rulers and authority and cosmic powers of darkness. And evil, and behind all of that is this fallen angel named Satan. Now, chapter 13 has revealed that Satan doesn't work alone, that he might be the mastermind of darkness, the father of lies, but he's actually subcontracted other demonic creatures and beasts and angels to carry out this sinister plan and we saw a couple weeks ago these two of these characters being the first beast who's known as the antichrist and the, the second beast who's known as the false prophet who are working to redirect worship of god toward worship of satan and here in this chapter we're introduced to a new character who's working with satan and she's labeled the great prostitute, or, or in other places, the whore of Babylon. And chapter 17, verse 3, shows that she is working in cahoots with Satan, and that she's riding on the first beast. It's, it's like the first beast is sort of a throne that she sits on, that they're working together, and she's functioning as a temptress. And in verse 5, we find the name of this, this woman, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. Now, when the apostle John, now keep in mind, John has seen the resurrected Jesus. He's looked and seen a vision of God sitting on his throne already. He's had that sort of uh, a beautific vision of who God is. In fact, in that moment is like the culmination of all sense of imagination. You, you cannot imagine God any greater than what he is in that moment where he sees God and, and the Lamb of God who is slain for the sins of the world sitting on the throne But when John sees this duo of this great prostitute and this first beast working together, Scripture tells us that he marveled greatly. And there's been a lot of speculation about what it means for John to marvel greatly. They wonder, well, is he being seduced by this temptress? Or was he intimidated by once again seeing the beast? But that's not what's going on here. The angel calls John out of it. He says, snap out of it. Let me, let me provide some clarity here for what's going on. Why is John surprised? Why is he marveling? It's because he's surprised to see that this beast is still alive. Remember, he's, he's been time transferred back. He, the seventh bull of wrath, he saw God's judgment issued fully and completely that all evil had been wiped out and dealt with. But then for some reason, he sees this beast, and he's wondering, what's going on here? Did God's judgment on evil not work? Is evil more resilient than God anticipated? No, that's that's not at all the case. The angel said to him in verse 7, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. This is where it gets confusing a little bit. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise up from the bottomless deep te- Okay, So that this time thing here is really confusing. But what the angel is showing John here, that with this time warp that, that he's been sort of invited into, that this, this vision that he sees is, is before the final judgment that we saw back in chapter 16. And so John is just shocked to see this beast, that it still exists. And while John is shocked to see the beast, other people are having a completely different response to this prostitute and the beast, where, where they too are marveling, but they're not marveling because they're shocked, they're marveling because they've been seduced. This, this woman has lured People with the appearance of beauty. You see this in how she's described in the first few verses, where she's arrayed in clothing of purple and scarlet, that she's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. There's something about her that's intoxicating. There's something about her appearance that's very attractive. And so they're intoxicated by her and what she has to offer. They're captivated. And the way that the scripture talks about it, 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 it presents it in, in sexual terms. But what she has going on is way more than just sex appeal. She has the ability to exploit the common desires of humanity. Now just, let's, let's step out of this text for a second. Let me, let me say that if we were to survey the city, if we were to ask the city, what do you really want out of life? I bet there would be a lot of similar answers. Think, think about it yourself. If you're, what do I really want from life? Don't be too hyper-spiritual about it. Like, what, what are the things that you desire right now? Right? I bet most of you are thinking something along the lines of, man, I, I just want to be happy. I just want to enjoy life. I want to be comfortable. I don't want to have to think about money and the stresses of of life. I want to be wealthy and and prosperous. I want to be in good health. I want to enjoy the body that I have. Now, I think these are common desires here. And the desire for these things actually exposes our lack of them, right, right? If you're wealthy, or theoretically if you're wealthy, you, you don't necessarily want more money because you're sort of satisfied. If you're feeling healthy, you're not necessarily completely desirous of, uh, of health. It's when you're sick or when you're poor when you really long for those things. So what, this, what these desires show us is that we are actually lacking in some sense. And maybe you have those things, but even then there's this this frailty or vulnerability that these things have, of having this status, that that they could be here today, you could be wealthy today, and then your wealth is gone tomorrow. Healthy today, and it's gone tomorrow. Now, these aren't bad desires. Not at all. These are common desires that are shared across humanity. And what they do is expose our longings for what we had in the Garden of Eden before sin ruined this world. See, in in Eden, these desires that we have for comfort and wealth and security and joy and pleasure, those things were all fulfilled above and beyond what we hoped for. Adam and Eve were the most prosperous, happy, pleasurable, and in good health people that you'll ever meet. But all of that was lost when sin entered this world. And what happened here? It wasn't just that sin came and robbed us of those things. Sin put a barrier between the source of those things. See, the benefits, the joys of the garden were not because of the garden itself. It was because Adam and Eve got to live a life lived near to God. God was the source of these things. They enjoyed all of these benefits just in being close relationship to him. And so we see that fulfillment of these desires isn't necessarily wrapped up in a geographical location. It's wrapped up in relationship to God. Now here's the great conspiracy that maybe you've been waiting for me to define. As this prostitute conspires with Satan, what she is doing is promising to deliver on these desires that we all have. She can give it to us without needing to be in relationship with God. that's, That's her conspiracy reality. She's saying that I can give you what you want. I can make you comfortable and wealthy and prosperous and healthy. You don't need to go to God for these things. You can find it in me. We can create our own utopia. We can create our own version of Eden, but we can do it without God. Now, when you think about it, the reason why she's called Babylon is because she's being connected to a city that we're introduced to in Genesis chapter 11, the, the city of, of Babel. You, you might know this story. Uh, this was a point in human history where, where all people were together. They shared the same language. They could cooperate very well. But they were still following the Garden of Eden. And, and these people started working together to build a tower. Now you think, well, what's so harmless about a tower? right? They're just trying to build some sort of city infrastructure. But their motives in doing this were twisted. They were sinful motives. The town motto was We don't need God. We can make a name for ourselves. We don't need God to find comfort. We can create that in the systems of a city. We don't need God. We can create hospitals and doctors. Now, the city of Babylon would eventually fall apart, right? The the city is now in ruins. But listen, the spirit of that city lives on today in the spirit of this prostitute, and she manifests herself in every single city across the globe. She propagates her God-undermining conspiracy in two unique ways. She does this systemically, and she does this personally. If you take a look at at chapter 7, verse 2, actually a little bit before that, uh, the angel says to John, Come and I will show you the judgments of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those whose sexual immorality, the the, earth dweller, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now, it, later on in 17 and chapters 18, this picture is created about how this great prostitute works by creating social structures, by influencing world governments. It's not just isolated in one part of the globe. It's spread abroad. Even even there you see it. She's on many waters. She's influencing world governments and the system of economics. She's working on a large scale. And down in 17 verse 9, we see how John is being cryptically specific about Rome which would be the current world superpower in the time that he's writing this. He says, the past rulers of Rome have been in cahoots with this lady. The future rulers of Rome will be in cahoots with this harlot. And what happens in verse 13 is that they're given power and they're creating the systems and then they give the worship and the power back to this woman. But John is also telling us that Rome isn't the only world power that is under the vex of this harlot. In chapter 18, she says, all of the nations have drunk. All of the kings of the earth have gotten into bed with this prostitute, not just Rome. Now, what that means is that anywhere there's a political system, anywhere humans organize themselves in some sort of societal structure, there's an opportunity for this prostitute to get in there and twist it. And I think that's especially true even here in the United States. Now, hopefully you're not shocked by that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you, can, you get the sense that anywhere there, there is cultural norms, anywhere there is public policy that is created and it's opposed to Scripture, it's, it's opposed to God's way, Satan is at work there. Anytime policy gives the option to terminate life, no matter what phase or what cognitive ability life is at, there is something demonic about that. Anytime there are systemic injustices that prevent legal immigrants and refugees from thriving in their new home, which they probably, they would much rather be at home anyway, anytime societal norms are set up like that 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 impair their ability to flourish... There's injustice there. Anytime there's racism or classism that keeps people stuck in poverty while the rich get richer, there are systemic problems there. And it's easy for us to look at these things as Christians and say, well, obviously something's wrong with that. But there are other things that are so subtle. They're so subtle in our society that they've become widely accepted by Christians and non-Christians alike. And these things, though though not always inherently wrong or sinful or evil, can be used to lead people away from God. You see, this is how the harlot works. She preys on our desires by offering something of lesser value in place of God, instead of the joy of the Lord that transcends circumstances, she offers us consumerism, materialism. Oh, are you feeling bummed out? You a little gloomy today? Well? Go, go on a shopping spree, Flip through Amazon till you find something that you, you like. You want pleasure? You want to feel the, the joy of the Lord that is supposed to be your strength? Pfft, no need for that. Why don't you just go pound a bag of potato chips? Right? Just, just gorge on that. Maybe, maybe grab some booze or, or, or express yourself sexually or, or even the new drug of social media. Use that to find your pleasure. You want to be healthy? Oh, sure. Yeah, no no need to live wisely. No need to to turn to God in prayer when your body is sick and weak. There's meds for that now. And maybe the government will even pay for it. You want to be affluent? You want to be wealthy? Yeah, just follow suit. Do, Do what everybody else is doing. Jump in, get in on it right and and what the pattern is is you get ahead by putting others behind but verse 2 even though it exposes the systemic problems it also shows that we can't just put the blame on the system that this is happening on a personal level that there are individuals who are complicit in being tempted by this Prostitute. The, the moniker that is used is earth dwellers. It's a moniker for those who have rejected Jesus and his grace and have instead decided to get drunk on the love punch of the prostitute. The people who are lured by the, what the prostitute has to, to offer and says that this is really cream of the crop. This is, this is my best life now. And, and they can't help but give themselves to this. They're like drooling, lustful boy men who can't advert from their, eye, their eyes from the allure of pornography. They, they're just sucked in. Now, this, this woman is so appealing, at least aesthetically, because chapter 18 tells us that she has glorified herself. She, she's made herself appear beautiful, appear attractive, in luxury. She's boasted of her affluence. She, she's, she's said, I'll never know what it's like to suffer. I, I've got all the comfort that I need. She's lured kings and merchants. She's offered the, the happiness, wealth, power, and luxury from the top of society's rungs all the way to the bottom, whether it be kings or merchants. Now, all you have to do to get, to get what she's promising you is to buy in, follow suit. Give yourself to her and she can deliver on your deepest desires, so she says. And listen, something horrific happens when people are bought in. When when people are so attracted to what, what this woman has to offer They are repulsed by the notion that Jesus could offer them something better. So to them, following Jesus looks like self-deprivation. It's like Jesus is some sort of prudy, puritanical fun killer. Like, Like he doesn't want to deliver on any of these desires or longings that you have. And so people get so offended and disinterested that they persecute Jesus as if he's trying to take away the good stuff, when in reality, Jesus is the one who's trying to offer you the abundant life. And every time people get into bed with this prostitute, they get hardened toward Jesus. Jesus. That they gain hostility toward him. Who is he to tell me how to live my life? Who is he to tell me what's good for me? And that hostility towards Jesus overflows toward his followers. There's, there's no way to get around it. The, 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 The prostitute has a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. It's drunk on the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This is not a victimless thing. She's causing widespread destruction. Now, you might be curious. I haven't touched on it yet. But, but why does John use such sexually charged language, right? I didn't know this language was allowed in church. Like, why would he paint this picture that seems so sexually charged? Now, John uses sexual immorality as a backward innuendo for the spiritual infidelity and spiritual unfaithfulness when people have rejected God, it's a motif used all throughout Scripture. You can see it in the book of Hosea and his unfaithful bride Gomer. You can see that in, in the church or God's people being an imperfect or uh, impure bride. You see that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter six. It's it's an ongoing motif from Genesis to Revelation. And the reason why he uses sexual immorality, why he's, why he's talking about sex, is because sex might be the closest physical we, act we have that expresses the spiritual act of worship. Think about that. How, how, do, you, how do you classify what worship is? Sex gives us a picture. Sex is letting your guard down to someone else. It's being 100% vulnerable. It's giving your most intimate and entire self to somebody and saying, I trust you. That's why God intends for sex to happen within within the confines of marriage. It's risky business. You can only do that with somebody who you've trusted someone else with your entire life. In fact, Tim Keller says sex is doing with your body what you have already done with the rest of your life. That means, in the context of marriage, it means that you're not withholding anything. You're emotionally sharing yourself, financially, your calendar, your home, and now the most intimate parts of your body. It's a sharing of your whole self. And worship expresses the same sentiment. It's saying to God, I'm giving you everything I have. Everything I am, I'm entrusting to you, Jesus, every facet of my life. Not, not just Sunday mornings, not just, not just a sliver of my tithe, but all of me. That's what, that's what Hebrew 12, Hebrews 12 tells us. It says, to live like a living sacrifice. Fully devoted to Jesus. This is our spiritual act of worship. Worship is a gesture of intimacy, it's, it's reciprocating the love and devotion Jesus has toward his people. Now, this is why. Scripture talks about the union between Jesus and the church as a marriage, and that's what we're moving toward next week in chapter 19. When we worship Jesus wholeheartedly, we practice spiritual fidelity. We're telling Jesus, I'm all in, my my whole life is yours. And yes, this does include sexual matters. We worship Jesus by abiding within the confines that he gives us of, of sexuality, but extends far, far beyond that. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, has this quote. He says, I'm gonna abbreviate it, but he says that there's not one square inch in all of creation where the Lord Jesus doesn't look and say, mine. Not one square inch. And Jesus looks at our life and says the same thing. He says, I want all of you. There's not one square inch of you that should be off limits to him. And this is where Christian worship begins. A lot of times we think of worship as what we do in the first half an hour of our gatherings where we're we're singing songs together. Christian worship is allowing Jesus to fulfill every single desire that you have, every longing for comfort, for pleasure, for hope, for joy. That's what worship is meant to do. And the prostitute is at work to steal and to sneak in and to disrupt that flow of wholehearted worship toward Jesus. She uses deceptive appearances and empty promises to lure her. Again, she says, oh, I can give you what you want. All I need in exchange for me is just a little sliver of you. I don't need the whole thing. Just give me a little sliver. She's like a fake worm on the end of a fishing string. None of it's real. What she's promising is, is empty. She's deceiving you. She's, she's lying about who she is and what she can deliver on. A few weeks ago, I was exposed to this story about a woman. I can't remember her name, but I'm going to call her Amanda. Amanda was a single mom. She was living out on the West Coast. Um, When she got pregnant, her her baby daddy basically just split. He said, I don't want anything to do with it. You figure it out on your own. And so here Amanda is. She's in her early 20s. She's got a, a baby. She's trying to navigate life, trying to work a job, keep an apartment, all of this stuff. And here in that void, in that tough spot, her desires, her longings were to meet a man, to fall in love, and that he would become a father and provide her for the family. And by what seems like a miracle, she meets this sweet, charming, handsome guy. And he starts dating her, and things seem to be going well. They start talking about their, their future together. They're talking about marriage on the horizon and how they can't wait to start their life together for real. talking about adopting this child and becoming the father. And in the midst of these discussions, he tells her that his job is now relocating him to Vegas. And so he he makes this offer, I'd like for you to come move out with me. And we could start this life here. He proposes and she accepts. And so she moves in with him and, and as soon as she gets to Las Vegas, she finds out that she's been duped. This guy, this whole time, has been parading her around as some great guy. But in reality, he's been grooming her and recruiting her to inject her into the sex trafficking world. Basically holds this child as hostage. You better go to work. Get my money back. Do what I tell you to do and everything will be fine. She finds herself in a nightmare. This man, this evil man, preyed on her desires and used her. This is a horrifying story. But this is what the prostitute is doing to humanity. She's swindling us. She's luring us. And then she becomes your pimp. She puts you to work. Get after it. You work for me now. You're enslaved to her sin. And nobody is immune to her. In fact, if there's one thing that the Old Testament shows us, is that how prone God's people are to getting into bed with this woman. It's so easy for us to buy into the lie that we can have the good life without any thought of God. But there was a man who perfectly resisted this woman's advances, who looked past the caked-on makeup and the fishnet stockings, who said, no, the only way to get to my heart's deepest longings is to live a life near to God. And so Jesus lived the perfect life that we were meant to live, always listening to God, always in pursuit of God, wholeheartedly devoted to God, And in compassion, he looks at us floundering in our sin, trapped. He sees us heading to destruction on account of our infidelity, just like the harlot, which if you really look at chapter 18, really what it's talking about is how, how the harlot cannot make good on any of her promises. That every single promise is empty, that she herself will be destroyed. And Jesus looks at us and he has compassion. He could have just written us off and said, that's what they deserve, that's what their unfaithfulness to God has earned them. But he says, I'm going to step in. I'm going to take the punishment. See, there's a warning for us. In, in uh, Revelation 18, verse 4, he says, Then I heard another voice from heaven, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sin, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are he high as heaven. Jesus said, I see these people who have been unfaithful to God, who have been unfaithful to me, and I'm going to step in. And I'm going to take their place. I'm going to bear their infirmities. I'm going to bear their sins so they don't have to face the wrath of God themselves. That's the gospel. That Jesus, the man who knew no sin, became our sin so that we could become the purified bride of Christ. Jesus was fully devoted to God and being fully devoted to God, Jesus was fully devoted to saving sinners and rescuing us from this Woman And he does all the work of saving. He does all the work of cleansing and purifying. But he calls us to respond to him in faithfulness. Come out of her. Church, this is a wake-up call for us. Are you aware of what's going on? Are you, are you aware of the things that you're participating on that are, in that are moving you away from God? Wake up, see those things for what they are, remove the veneer and resist her. And listen, when we resist this great prostitute, life gets hard for Christians. It does because it means that we're not following the status quo, that we have a new sort of template, we have a new guide for our life and that is to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. If you're sitting here and you realize you've been turning to someone else other than God to quench the thirst of your desires, I hope you realize how toxic that is. And I hope you turn to Jesus because unlike this harlot, Jesus is the real real deal. Every desire you have is fulfilled in him and it satisfies you, fills your cup to the full. If you've never experienced Jesus like that before, I'd like to offer you the opportunity confess where you've been turning to other things to satisfy your longings. Repent of those things and turn to Christ. Say, Lord, I don't, I don't know what the next step for me looks like, but man, I just want, I want to be in on the real deal. And Jesus will meet you exactly where you're at. You don't need to pretty yourself up. You don't, you don't need to try to put your life together And as we survey the beauty of Christ, we, we survey that the deep joys and relish in the grace that he gives us. That's when the church becomes who she ought to be. Faithful, beautiful, adorned. See, this, this whore of Babylon is an imposter. She, she's, she's a parody of what the church is meant to be, clothed in radiant beauty. That's what God is doing here in this church. He's purifying us. He's making us new through the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've not just left us to our own desires, with pointing them at whatever we want that could end in our destruction. You've, you've called out to us that you have you've sent us Christ to show us what, what beauty is. You've sent Christ to be perfectly obedient to you on our behalf. And we ask, Father, that that we would just be enamored with him, that our affections would be for Jesus, that everything else would just pale in comparison, that with our whole lives we can say, I'm giving myself over to you because Jesus gave his entirety of himself over to us. This table that we come to, it's his body that was broken for us. It was his blood that was shed, Father. As we take it and we eat, would would we be nourished by it? Would it compel us to mission, to living a holy life and following you wherever you would lead us. For our good and for your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.